So I grew up in a middle-sized Baptist church in Macon, Georgia. I say grew up there. My family joined when I was about four. And I did vacation Bible school there. I sang in the children's choirs there. My middle school into high I was there a little over 20 years. Middle school and high school years, I was a, a core member of the church youth group. And it was in that church youth group that I met a young man named Grant. Grant was a few years older than me. He was the heartthrob, if you will, of the youth group. He was tall, he was beautiful, and he was from an affluent family. He even drove a rare sports car. And I was actually relieved when he graduated high school and left the youth group so the girls could put their attention elsewhere because it was, it was all his. <laughs> and he got to college. He went, we had this little Baptist college in Macon, Georgia, and, and a prominent Baptist college in Macon, Georgia. And Grant attended there, and he met there he met a girl named Michelle. And Michelle was the female version of Grant. She, too, was beautiful. She, too, was from a an affluent, prominent family. And by the time they were, at this point in the story, they were seniors in college, I believe. They were both members of prominent sorority and fraternity on campus. And by this time of the incident I'm about to tell you about, I had moved to college. I was in college in another town, and I really had no, no real contact with Grant any longer, except for the fact that his girlfriend and my girlfriend were sorority sisters. But anyway, I was at my parents' home one evening, and we got a phone call. And Grant and Michelle had been murdered. They were parked at a well-known overlook just outside of Macon at this picturesque lake. And someone came up and shot both of them multiple, multiple times. I don't want to get into the crime scene, but it was unimaginable. And the funeral, <laughs> the funeral was absolutely heart-wrenching. Um, hundreds upon hundreds of college students, teenagers up to early mid-twenties, filled our church. Every seat, every pew was taken. The aisles were full of people. The side aisles were full of people. They spilled out into the street and you know, when you're at a funeral, there's, there's sounds of a funeral. There's sniffles and light crying and people hugging each other and telling each other that they love them. But that wasn't completely the case at this funeral. There was open wailing and mourning as these young men and women tried to make sense of this. And you could literally hear the question being screamed. Why? How could God let this happen? And to make matters worse, the killer was still at large. There were no witnesses. And people needed to know. So, of course, the gossip mill and the speculation ran rampant because we had to attach something to the murder. Some, there had to be a reason that this happened other than evil exists. There has to be a reason. Had um, Grant and Michelle made enemies or had, um, was this a jealous boyfriend? Something like that. Um, and both, both of the two of them, Grant and Michelle, they both came from very prominent families. Was this some sort of revenge against their families? But no answers came, and our little town was rocked for years. As a matter of fact, the 90s television program, you may remember this, Unsolved Mysteries, actually covered this murder, did an episode on this crime, hoping to kind of unearth some answers, but, but none ever came. 
And finally, one day, investigators, they were looking into registered firearm owners that owned the types of guns used in the, the types of weapons used in the murder. And so the killer at this point felt as though he was being closed in on. And so he decided to confess to his father that he was the killer. To add another crazy layer to this, this young man's father was an FBI agent. And to add tragedy upon tragedy, this father testified for the prosecution in his own son's murder trial. And the murderer was asked, how did you do this? Why did you do this? What led to this? And he, very coldly, there was no reason. He chose the couple at random. He didn't even know them. He had never seen them before. He just stated that he wanted to know what it felt like to kill somebody. He was executed in 2013. And in his final words to the parents, he apologized. But he still said he had no reason. No motive other than evil. And this is a heavy example I know to start with. But we will all, in this sin-cursed world, we will all find ourselves at some point crying out to God and wanting answers. Wishing we had the wisdom of God in order to know how whatever tragedy or trial we're going through, how, and how is this going to work out to the ultimate glory of God? And that's certainly where Job finds himself. In chapter 26, Job is he's speaking of God's power. In, in chapter 27, he's questioning God's power. And then in chapter 28, we suddenly get a hymn. It's a hymn of perfect perspective. We see Job celebrate God's wisdom. He proclaims that only God's wisdom can lead to total understanding. And only God has God's wisdom. So we may never understand fully God's providence. And in Job 28, through this hymn, he proclaims to the reader... And he does so again with great and right perspective. Of this passage, David McKenna writes, Job himself sings as a poet, speaks as a philosopher, and sees as a prophet in this hymn of wisdom. This is quite a large passage today, so we're going to, our three points will be based around the three stanzas of this hymn. So our first passage this morning, Job 28, verses 1 through 12. Surely there is a mine for silver, and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out the farthest limit, the searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives, and they are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind, they swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and its dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, and the lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. 
He dams up the stream so that they do not trickle. And the thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? I think in this this passage, this hymn, the author is kind of breaking the tension, right? There's, There's been a lot of crying out to God, a lot of suffering in the previous chapters. He's kind of bringing an order to that just for, just for a moment. And Job's, Job's friends to this point, they have been in error, right? They're, using, they're trying to use God to confirm their own opinions rather than using the word of God to shape their thoughts. To this point in the book, Job has been more Socratic than poetic. He's been more linear than discreet and more emotional than com- contemplative. He's suddenly seeing clearly through the doubt and error of previous chapters. Our first point this morning, there are God-given attributes of humanity that should be celebrated and enjoyed in proper context. So throughout this passage, one can hear Job proclaiming, even celebrating the ingenuity of man in the mining of rare riches and resources of the earth. And extracting ore, precious metals, and gems from the earth is difficult today, not to mention thousands of years ago. He speaks of opening the shaft to bring an end to darkness, finding where the ore is hiding in the earth. He says that humans have found amazing and extreme ways to extract what they find valuable. Verse 3, Job celebrates man's intellect and perspective. Verse 4, Job describes the elaborate and dangerous efforts man can endure. Verse 5, we see Job's knowledge of smoke, fire, even volcanoes. He makes the point that only humans can dig up the treasures of the earth. Only humans can dam up rivers to expose their resources. Job eloquently and enthusiastically celebrates humanity's creativity, courage, and ingenuity while acknowledging Man's inability to effort wisdom. Verse 7, Job celebrates man's curiosity. He explores the unknown. His vision, he sees better than the falcon. His courage, verse 8, more fierce than a lion. Verse 9, Job talks of man's inventiveness in making tools. His discernment in perceiving that which is precious. And his creativity in providing approaches and alternatives. Job celebrates value and worth in people. Because people are created by God, they have worth. Verse 11, he makes a note of man's skill and ingenuity. He brings insight to light. He sees humanity as an image bearer of God. And they're capable because of that of great and impressive things. Especially when they ascribe worth to something. So throughout history, we've seen mankind go to great lengths for what they find valuable. I wanted to come up with a couple examples. I thought about the California gold rush of 1848. The largest mass migration in U.S. history lasted around seven years, where people poured into a territory and they, they braved 
unimaginable conditions. They moved tons of dirt and mud. They waded through freezing water. At one point during the California gold rush, one in five prospectors was losing his life in the harsh and remote environment. But they desired and ascribed worth to the riches of the earth. And they accomplished great things. Job is celebrating this characteristic of humanity as gifted by God. 1962, on September 12th, John F. Kennedy stood in front of the country and said, we choose to go to the moon in the next decade. That has special relevance to this town. Man had only recently explored Earth's orbit, and now, in an attempt to achieve a victory in the Cold War, we set our sights on going to the moon. Our government collected brilliant minds, engineers, scientists, mathematicians to cover, to support, to equip, to plan. Our space program hired every engineer they could find. Trivia nugget, that's actually how UAH got here. That's how it came to Huntsville. Our space program needed more engineers. And then under the guidance of brilliant men, Engineers and missile men built a rocket. They called it the Saturn V. You've seen it. You drive past it. The Saturn V was tested here in Huntsville. Those that were here during the time remember windows shattering as the five engines that produced 11 million pounds of thrust were fired. It was, when it was fully tricked out, it was 363 feet tall. And the engineers, scientists, and math nerds looked at that thing and they said, you know, if we light it, we can probably get it out of Earth's orbit for the first time in human history. But they needed someone to fly it. But luckily, the government had acquired a handful of square-jawed alpha male fighter pilots that said, you know what, if you take that 363-foot explosive device and strap me to it, I'll ride it to the moon. And don't worry, if there's a problem, you have a support team. There's a room full of people in Houston armed with slide rules and protractors and number two pencils, and they'll do everything they can to keep you safe. And the LIM, the lunar excursion module that took the astronauts from the command module down to the surface of the moon, that was... That was armed with a mighty Texas Instruments calculator as its computer. To keep the astronauts safe after they had traveled 240,000 miles to the moon. And then it happened on July, in July 1969, Apollo 11 reaches the moon. Man walks on the moon. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that one of your elders, my brother, mentor, and friend, Jerry Flanagan, actually was one of the men that helped make that happen working on Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and the space shuttle. But this desire to explore, the desire to defeat our Cold War enemies, it drove humanity to amazing lengths because we valued exploration. I spoke with, with Jerry on Thursday trying to confirm my facts, and he told me that God has put down deep inside man abilities and drive that bubble out when we attach worth to something. Job is celebrating this God-gifted trait. Contrast that with Job 25. In Job 25, Bildad has just uttered a negative view 
of man. He says in Job 25 and verses 4, 6, Then how can man be right before God? How can he who was born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? In contrast, Job seeks great value and worth in human beings as image bearers of God. David McKenna writes, Bildad makes man a grub and the rotting carcass of the earth. Job exalts him as a mind and spirit created in the image of God. Job is speaking positively about man's ability to invent, create, an intellect that puts an end to darkness, right? But these efforts and abilities do not grant wisdom. And we see that in the final verse of the first stanza, verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Our second point this morning, wisdom is beyond the ingenuity of man. There is no achievement, no advancement, no accomplishment, no effort of humanity that can bring with it true wisdom. So back to our passage, speaking of wisdom, verses 13 through 20, of wisdom, man does not know its worth. And it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. In precious onyx or sapphire, gold and glass cannot equal it. Nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? We see verse 20, a recapitulation of verse 12. The third stanza is going to answer that question when we get there. Again, wisdom is not available to human efforts. There's no payment high enough, verse 13. There's no effort great enough. But we are an affluent people, especially here in the United States. And we tend to think that anything and everything can be bought, right? We buy homes and we buy cars and and then we try to buy peace of mind for those possessions. We buy insurance. We buy homeowner's insurance, car insurance. The Moncrief just filed a claim on both in the last month. It's been great. (laughs) We buy politicians. Politicians buy elections. If we step outside the law, if you have enough money, you can decrease your chances of suffering a severe penalty or maybe penalty at all. And this can lead us to feel as though anything can be bought. But verse 13 says, wisdom is not in the land of the living. We like to think that our efforts lead to the things we desire. We work for a career that allows us to take care of our family, right? We love to work at something and then achieve. We put those achievements on our wall and on our trophy shelves. Men, when you pursued your wives, you used great effort because you attached great value to her. By the way, you should still use great effort. 
That's a free one. I won't charge you for that one. But if we experience success, we like to think it is by our own efforts. Just as no human effort can earn salvation, no human endeavor can grant wisdom. Wisdom belongs to God. It cannot be found in the land of the living. And that is a humbling notion. Because almost everything in our word has a world has a price. Verses 15 through 19 list the world's most precious rocks, gems, and metals as was known at the time. Gold, silver, gold of Ophir, precious onyx, lapis, glass, coral, crystal, pearls, pure gold. Yet none can buy wisdom. We may create, we may engineer, we may discover, we may achieve, but achievement does not mean an increase in knowledge or wisdom. As a matter of fact, advancement actually requires greater and greater wisdom. Today we are more educated than any civilization in human history, right? Right Right here, you hold more computing power, we spoke of the space program, than Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo put together. Right there. We can access anything and everything. Yet with all this seemingly boundless access to knowledge, our society is becoming increasingly unwise. Because there is a great difference between knowledge and wisdom. And knowledge without wisdom is dangerous. And responsible for many of the difficulties in this world. A few years ago, we went through a pandemic in which fear often overruled knowledge because we lacked wisdom. Society has never been more knowledgeable of things like mental health, a person's feelings, their self-esteem, their racial experience, their cultural differences... Yet our society grows more and more segregated and divided and tribal by the day. We have medical advances to diagnose all sorts of ailments and then how to cure them. We can look at someone with a severe hormone imbalance and we can treat that to give them a a livable, enjoyable life. We can alter the body chemistry of a human being, but then... In a very unwise fashion, we take that very knowledge and we use it on children that say they may think they're a different gender. A little girl may say she feels like a boy. Or a little boy may say he feels like a girl. And so we take a drug and we block their puberty. We have the knowledge of how to alter a human being, but we do not have the wisdom to know what is truly loving. Nothing loving about mutilating the body of a child. What woke society is doing to children in the United States is not loving. It's not just unwise. It's child abuse. It's the consequence of knowledge without wisdom. Our world desires godless wisdom. Godless wisdom doesn't exist. Charles Spurgeon once said, Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. Job is saying that man goes to great lengths for what he values. So what do we value? What do we ascribe worth to? 
We spoke earlier of the gold rush. We were, as a people, willing to travel across the country in brave, horrible conditions, displace thousands of Native Americans just for gold to get wealthy, but we don't like to go to church if it's raining outside. We can skip, we can skip time in the Word, reading our Bibles, if the, if the new season of Stranger Things is out on Netflix. We can find any excuse in the world, in the world to not be in the Word or to not be worshiping with the gathered assembly. And Scripture tells us that that is the source of wisdom. It's certainly not in our society. It's not in our politics. When it comes to the political scene, our citizens, we watch this every few years during election cycles. We get so worked up about candidates and elected leaders. But do our selections of government leaders reflect our value of wisdom? The answer is no. And by the way, that should convict everyone in this room to pray for wisdom for your leaders, whether you voted for them or not. What I'm trying to say here is that often we desire to be wise, but we do not value wisdom. We do not align ourselves with wise people. Rather, we just align ourselves with people that dislike the same people that we dislike. But then... When hard times befall us, then we desire the wisdom of God. And God is gracious to grant wisdom to his children. A godly man or a godly woman is a precious gift to a family or even to a church. Only God knows everything and only God is unwise, all wise. And that is where we struggle. We struggle to understand God's wisdom when it has to do with how it relates to his providence. When it brings us trial and pain, we ask things like, God, why does evil exist? Why did the Holocaust happen? A couple of examples from my life. God, why did three of my friends die when I was a teenager? Three separate tragic ways. Lord, why did you make me a musician? And then take hearing away from my son. We desire wisdom and understanding to make sense out of the things that hurt us. By the way, each of those questions does have an answer. We don't have time enough to get into them all. But I can tell you personally for me, when I've gone through the greatest trial in my life, I have seeked wisdom the hardest. Our God is all-powerful, all-knowing, forever-existing, unchanging. But we often find ourselves frustrated that we can't understand why he permits or ordains something unpleasant in our lives. So we're, We've been reading time and time again, Job loves repetition. Wisdom is not purchasable. It is not earnable. So where is it and what is it? The answer comes in verses 21 through 28, our final stanza. It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight, 
and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, when he saw it and declared it, he established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. That brings us to our third and final point this morning. And it is quite simply... God is the only source of true wisdom. And again, that's a comforting and quite a a humbling thing. Humility is important here because wisdom and pride cannot coexist. Wisdom is an attribute of the humble. And we as a people have tried everything in an attempt to earn, to acquire understanding But human human beings simply cannot have the wisdom of God apart from the revelation of God. And this is why we open our Bibles. And this is why here at Capshaw, Scripture is the basis, the foundation for all that we do and say. If I stand up here and I teach a self-improvement lesson rooted in whatever trend or fad is popular at the moment, then you're, you're restricted to the wisdom of man, which is minimal at best. God is the only source of wisdom. Scripture is the source of God's word. So we seek God's word if we desire to be wise. Because, verse 21, wisdom is hidden from our eyes. Verse 24, Job says that God sees to the ends of the earth. Verse 25, he establishes a weight for the wind. Verse 26, he sets a law for the rain and the thunderbolt. Verse 27, he, de- he declares the establishment of wisdom. God's power, knowledge, and wisdom is beyond comprehension, yet sometimes we, even in a non-humble manner, demand answers to questions we're not capable of understanding. Or we seek wisdom apart from seeking God. And sometimes we even have to ask ourselves, Are we seeking God or are we just frustrated and being demanding of God? And this closing verse, let's read it one more time. And he said to man, behold, fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So that question about what does it mean to fear God, I've actually, that's a question I've had to answer a a number of times. Why would we fear God if God is love? And doesn't 1 John 4 tell us that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear? I I feel the meaning here is that we certainly should fear God, but not live in terror of Him. Um, Any any analogy is going to break down because we're talking about the love of God here. But when, when I was a child, my father was my primary disciplinarian. And I I never doubted his love. I never felt unloved by him. But I did possess a degree of reverent fear. I feared his power. I I feared his discipline. But though I feared my father, I was never afraid of him, if that makes any sense. I was never in a dreadful terror of him. I think scripture is trying to tell us that there is a degree of fear in reverence. We see this echo time and again in Scripture, Psalm 111. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Psalm 112, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord who greatly delights in his commandments. But rather than fearing God and God alone, we fall into the sin of fearing man. We fear what what people think about us, how we are perceived, how we are being talked about. We are afraid of the consequences of speaking truth. We fall into the sin of fear of man. Job is not doing that here. That's evidenced by how he converses with his friends. And in verse, in, in verse 28, he's delighting in God's commandments. And because of that, Job comes off as one who is wise, one who has been given wisdom by God. And the reason for that is clear. It goes all the way back to the first message preached in this sermon series, Job 1.8. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth? A blameless and upright man, here it is, who fears God and turns away from evil. Job has been gifted wisdom by God. Even though his friends oppose, much like our world, our society today will oppose. How can you be so naive as to believe this ancient faith? How can you be so unenlightened, so narrow-minded to seek wisdom from from this, this book? When I was in college, I was a music major. I was what's called a musical performance major. My instrument was classical guitar. And I remember sitting in a room with my professors one time. They almost staged it like an intervention. I walk in and my professors are sitting there. And they said, we just wanted to tell you, Chris, uh, you're the only Christian in this department. And it's, it's a shame. It's a shame that because of your narrow-mindedness, you will never be able to grow and develop into a creative musician. You won't be able to understand the depth of emotions that a human can go through. You'll never be able to develop because your, your focus and your mind is so narrow that you'll never reach your full potential. These were men I idolized at the time. And I did fall at that point to fear of man. I was concerned what they thought about me. In today's society, we're worried about cancel culture and political correctness, wokeism, and how we as Christians are viewed through these prisms. Matthew 10 reminds us, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We approach God in reverence, respect, love of Jesus, treasuring the relation, the revelation of his word. Anything other than a reverent fear is pride. Proverbs 11. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. 
but with the humble is wisdom. I used to ask myself, I still do sometimes, why don't, why don't all intelligent people come to saving faith? Who God chooses seems to have nothing to do with education or intelligence. And I think it's because seemingly the smarter we are, the, the better idol constructors we are. Our flesh can replace God with this inflated idea of our own wisdom. Think about what our society calls love and compassion today. Proverbs 3 warns us against this. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Again, somewhere we fail time and again. J.I. Packer wrote, Not until we have become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. We see this even with Job. We get this beautiful hymn, this moment of clarity right in the middle of Job, right perspective. And Job has said everything correctly with his mouth, but he doesn't fully trust it and believe it in his heart. Because next chapter, he's right back to complaining and doubting God. That is because humanity is sinful. We are prone to wonder. We rely on our own knowledge, on our own understanding, rather than resting in the wisdom of God. Scripture tells us that no one seeks after God. Only the Holy Spirit can move the human heart to saving faith. And that we deserve hell. Humanity has deserved hell since our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. The once perfect relationship between God and his children was damaged and fractured by that sin. But in Jesus Christ, God gave himself. Jesus walked the earth sinlessly. He would be betrayed and wrongfully accused, corruptly tried and convicted, stripped naked, beaten, humiliated, spat upon. His flesh would be ripped from his body. A crown of thorns would be shoved into his scalp. He was pierced with a spear. He was executed. He stood before God in judgment, judgment for the sins of all believers. And he would suffer God's wrath through to its completion. In doing so, he restored the relationship between God and humanity. When God gazes upon the sin of one of his own, God gazes upon the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And it is so tempting to think that our sins are beyond God's forgiveness. We read earlier that God sees to the ends of the earth, to the very ends of the earth. And our fleshly knowledge of geography and navigation tells us that if you go north long enough, you end up going south. Or if you travel south long enough, you end up traveling north. But the same cannot be said for the east and the west. You, you may travel east forever. You may travel west forever. We're reminded of this God who sees to the ends of the earth Forgiving the sins of his children. And in Psalm 103, we are told he removes those sins as far as the east is from the west. 
endless, unimaginable grace and forgiveness. If you're a child of God, His forgiveness is beyond anything you can imagine. As far as the east is from the west. So we've seen that Scripture, from Scripture, that true wisdom comes from God alone. Salvation from God alone. In other words, if you are relying upon your own ability and your own efforts to acquire the things of God, you'll find yourself frustrated and you'll find yourself condemned. 1 Corinthians 1, For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So if you're here today and you have questions about belief, if you're confused, if you are struggling, if you felt that tug of the Holy Spirit on you and you'd love to talk with someone, you can certainly come talk to me or you can find one of our other seven elders or let me say this, if you're at Capshaw this morning, you're surrounded by people that care for you and that love Jesus, and they would love to talk with you. They'd love to pray with you. They'd love to tell you about this Jesus. Or just grab a cup of coffee with you sometime. I would like to close this morning with the words of a Southern Baptist evangelist. He said, if you lack knowledge, go to school. If you lack wisdom, get on your knees. Knowledge is not wisdom. Wisdom is the proper use of knowledge. Let's pray together.